0: Aloha, and welcome to the Emily T. Gale Show, ESPNHawaii.com. And thanks to Ashley and Liz, where we are out here in Bigsby Coffee, for turning on the TV so I can uh, talk with my good friend Neil Ruven from the Detroit News. I'm still in Detroit and just having a wonderful time. It's been an incredible week. and. And uh, Neil has been one of my my longtime supporters. We met back in 1984, about the time I headed to Hawaii, and he came to Detroit from um, Nevada, where he was sports writer of the year and had a, a great history as a... As a reporter, and lucky he came to Hawaii. I will bet when he came here, I think we've talked about this, Neil. You didn't intend to stay and be here in 2014, but welcome.
1: <laughs> Thank you. It, uh, you know, two of my favorite places represented here. Of course, I love the islands. My wife and I have been, and uh, I really do still love it here. After it's going to be 30 years in August.
0: It is home, right?
1: It is. It, you know, it's funny the places that become home. It never occurred to me. I'm a southwesterner. I grew up in. California, uh, high school and college in Colorado, and then five and a half years in Las Vegas. And if you'd told me somewhere in there that I was going to make a life in Detroit, I'd have thought you were kidding.
0: Well, what is so great is, you know, a sports writer. You uh, grew up in Colorado, right? Uh,
1: high school and okay. college okay. there, yes. We moved there when I was a junior in high school.
0: Okay, now I, I think I read somewhere that you went to the University of North Carolina on a seven-card stud scholarship. Yeah, it was actually <laughs> Tell us about that. Northern
1: Colorado, not North Carolina, on a seven-card stud scholarship. Um, you know, I, my dad had been laid off a lot. That was one of the reasons we moved to Colorado, and uh, and so, you know, didn't have a whole lot of money and I largely put myself through school and I figured out after a while that one of the ways I could do it was playing poker. And th- people ask me, people find out about this and uh, and ask me, what's the secret of poker? Well, the secret of poker is simple, play with bad players. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I found a couple of ready games uh, with people who weren't particularly good. And I didn't have to be great. I just had to pay more attention than they did.
0: And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> so with it, were you studying journalism, and were you into sports? Is that how you became a sports writer, or that was the assignments when you got into uh, writing for uh, the paper or in uh, uh, Nevada or wherever you went on your first job?
1: It sort of came, reading and sports to me came at the same time. Um, I was an early reader, like most people with an older sibling was. My brother's 20 months older than I am, uh, so if he was learning to read, I wanted to learn to read. And so, and then somehow or other, I discovered baseball. Probably six or seven years old, and I was one of those little geeks who read all the baseball history books and could quote you, you know, chapter and verse on Dizzy and Daffy Dean and the 1934 Cardinals, and I'm eight, nine years old that this thing is trumpeting out of. Well. This was when we were still in California, and the newspaper would show up on, you know, on the driveway every morning with baseball in it. So I went straight to the newspaper, straight to the sports section, and pretty soon, and I guess it was kind of comical to see, I was an undersized kid, so this little kid, big glasses, uh, when I wasn't playing baseball, I'm reading about it, reading the newspaper, and pretty soon I'm reading the whole newspaper and was just fascinated with the whole thing. Who knew that was going to turn into a career?
0: What position did you play?
1: I was a second baseman okay. mostly, which wow. is where they put okay. the, uh, you know, the little guy who hustles and doesn't have a ton of talent and doesn't throw all that well. Uh, later on, into my teens, even though I was still undersized, I played a lot of first base.
0: Okay, um, so was, when you came to Detroit, that would have been a Whitaker? Or uh, Trammell? It, yes, Whitaker, Trammell. Whitaker, Trammell, shortstop second. Whitaker, and Trammell. And first and base would have been? Darrell Red- Evans. Darrell Evans, oh yeah, yes, okay. on
1: those, uh, you know, on those 84- through oh well, '87, they made the playoffs again. Right, and uh, they're having a,
0: they're having a reunion. Uh, the '84 team. Uh, the end of the month here at Comerica Park.
1: That's right. I just read that Kirk Gibson won't be able to make it, but Alan Trammell will.
0: Okay. And I know Dave Rosemont because he's been talking with Dan Dickerson and uh, Jim Price talking about the reunion. But that was a, that was a great team, too. So, it, as a kid, when you were learning all the stats, it's Neil Rubin, a columnist for the Detroit News and a longtime friend. And it's the Emily T. Gale show here on com. It was your mind, sabermetrics Metrics, before Saber Metrics?
1: <laughs> you know, it was, to tell you the truth, and which maybe Helps explain. We were just talking about poker. Maybe when you're a little bit analytical and you understand um. statistics and probabilities, maybe that did help with poker later on. But I yeah. did. Um, I grasped the concept, for instance, of on base percentage decades oh. before it was fashionable. And I remember conferring with my Babe Ruth League coach. Um, it was senior little league, but it was the, the essential, you know, the same age bracket as what okay. people are familiar with as Babe Ruth. And, uh, and saying, you know, <laughs> incredibly nervy, but saying, look, we're kind of batting the wrong people in the wrong parts of the order here. Okay. And I just went through the scorebook of our first 12, 15 uh-huh. games. and said, look, these are the people getting on base. It may not look flashy, but. And uh, we moved things around had a much better second half of the season than the first half.
0: Yeah, well, I'm fascinated by all that. I'm kind of analytical, too, and I'm not so much applied to baseball, but to a lot of things, and so I understand that. For some reason, that just came to my mind as you were talking. I don't think we've ever talked about this before in terms of your liking stats. So I'm glad I made that connection because I never really I, – I, you know, they talk about sabermetrics, and now I realize, you know, it's not just somebody coming up with numbers and stuff. It really was the way somebody was thinking, right? When he, came, when he came up with that and said, let's apply that to how we're going to you know, trade people, how we're going to draft people.
1: Right. I mean, I, you know, you look back now at, uh, oh, heck, those early 1960s New York Yankees teams. And they were, you know, they were a powerhouse. They had Mantle, ultimately they had Maris. I think one year they had six or seven guys hit 20 home runs, which was unheard of. And you look back now, they had Bobby Richardson leading off. Great second baseman about a 260 hitter who rarely walked. In this day and age, Bobby Richardson would not be a leadoff hitter. He just didn't get on base enough. But back then, you put your scrappy second baseman or middle infielder Uh at the top of the order and nobody thought anything about it. Nobody analyzed it. It was just what everybody did.
0: Well, you know, so rarely for the the average kind of lay person who's a fan of of baseball. I wish the, the commentators would explain some of that sometime you know, talk about, you know, the, the, who's who's batting forth or okay, we've got the lineup today and, you know, instead of just putting the names that they could weave in a little bit, oh, okay, Brad Asmus has moved Tori Hunter into out of seventh place into whatever place. And maybe just a little explanation because they sometimes it's like computer people that are talking a little bit over your head. <laughs> right? <laughs> so you can teach me a little bit every time we get together, Neil Rubin, columnist for Detroit News, but not only that, I think it's really interesting that you also are the writer of the the column, the, the cartoon column, Gil Thorpe, since 2004. Tell us tell our listeners about the if they don't read the column or the cartoon, or the background of it.
1: Well, Gil Thorpe has been around since 1958. At this point, it's considered a legacy comic. The central character, Gil Thorpe is a high school coach and athletic director in a town called Milford. And we never say where Milford is, but it snows sometimes, so we can assume it's kind of back east, and the radio station starts with W instead of K.
0: And we have a Milford here in Michigan with a lot of Ws. That's
1: right. <laughs> so. um, it, you know, it, Most likely, it's based in New Milford, Connecticut, where the originator, Jack Barrow, lived. Oh, but anyway, okay. the strip revolves around Gilthorpe, who's sort of the father figure in, in this high school and in this town, and the rotating cast of kids who come through Milford and play for him. I think I was thinking about this the other day as I was thinking about you. I think Gil used to run in one of the Honolulu papers. I can't remember which one. It's been a long time now. Since, uh-huh. You know, they, as newspapers shrink, they carry fewer and fewer right. comic strips. But anyway. It's fun, it's a way to explore what life is like now for modern teenagers. It's a way sometimes to explore social issues, and sometimes it's just a place to be goofy and have fun.
0: And how often do you have a new column, and how do you, uh, what are you you watching all the time, what you might weave into it?
1: Absolutely, it, uh, you know, it's a standard comic strip. It, it runs six days a week, uh, Monday through Saturday, in about 50 or 60 papers around the country. Most of them in the South and the Northeast for some reason. But uh, it's never been a Sunday paper. We don't do a big Sunday uh-huh. comic. And it's a continuing storyline. It's not just a punchline a day. And I do. I will look around and look at issues in society or issues in high school um, and see, okay, how can I turn that into, insert that into sort of a sports setting and a high school setting and weave a storyline around it? A few years ago, um, I had a gay basketball player for Gill's for Gil's team, and that evolved into cyberbullying.
0: Okay. That was the issue okay. that came
1: with that. And so you just and sometimes it's silly stuff, but sometimes it's serious stuff. And you kind of try to deliver a message both sides of an issue, typically, but deliver a message in a way that people can think about it without thinking, "Hey, I'm being preached at."
0: So even if you do it in a silly way, the message is there. That's the hope, you know? anyway. Okay, because people always, you know, people pick up messages in different ways. They can take a laugh at it, and some people are a little more intense about it. I, I I just remember the first time I talked to you about it. How much it meant to you to really be a part of being a cartoonist.
1: It is, and it, you know, I should explain to people. I can barely draw stick figures, so I'm basically the screenwriter and the director okay. for Gilthorpe. I write every word that you see on the page, and I write instructions with every panel every day for what to the artist for what I want the panel to look like. But the artist is a fellow named Rod Wiggum, out of, he's a freelancer out of suburban Atlanta, and he takes the ideas and commits them to the pictures that everybody sees.
0: Has, it makes a difference. I mean in people's lives when they're reading it. Some people don't read the comics, but many, many people read your column on the inside of the Detroit News. Detroit Neil Rubin, it's the inside cover of the front page. The impact, every day when you open that Detroit news and there's your column, of course it's all over social media every day and everything. But what I mean I I think I, I wrote to you the other day what my four favorite columns were of yours. So everybody I, I think we are the type, when we read a columnist, we read them loyally. You know, if you have a sports columnist you like, that's whose column you read. And, and yours has been in you know, in that position for how many years now?
1: Oh, since 2000, I've been very lucky. It's, it's a wonderful place to be in the newspaper. One, You know, for people who are curious about Gil Thorpe, by the way, and then I'll get back to being on page 2A, gocomics.com. Okay, carries uh, has about a billion strips every comic strip you can think of you can find every day at GoComics.com. so it's a great resource and we
0: could catch up on the the, the storyline that's in gil thorpe by going back on, on
1: you can, you can they have archives okay. and for people who maybe miss a comic that their paper doesn't carry anymore uh-huh. that they used to read on the mainland and can't get now that they've moved to paradise GoComics.com just about has all of them. But from my perspective, you were saying being on page 2A of the Detroit News, it's as close as I'm ever going to get to being on a baseball card. I'm not going to lie. I still get a little kick out of seeing my picture in the paper and seeing my name in the paper every day. More than that, of course, it's the opportunity to express myself and to maybe sometimes change somebody's life or to give somebody a hand. I mean, that's an incredible responsibility, but it's also an absolute joy.
0: I was going to say that when you said opportunity, I said it's also a huge responsibility because I'm I'm amazed at the comments you get from mostly favorable, but you also get those ones tossed in of people that disagree, and we were talking earlier about how we handle those kind of things, and when you're writing a column, are you pretty focused on just writing that column and what it is you want to get out there? You do your work, you get out of the way, and however people receive it is how they receive it, and then you respond to that.
1: Exactly, and... And it's sort of funny. It, um, I'm sure you meet people who say, oh, yes, I've known you since so-and-so. You interviewed me once about it, and you're flipping the file cards in your head trying to remember it because, like me, you know, I can't always remember what I wrote last week because I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do this week and next week. It, there's a constant churn yeah. to it. We're on the treadmill. You've, you know, you've got a radio show. You've got to find guests and topics and interesting things every week. So it's kind of fun sometimes. I'll get reminded. Uh, I'll meet somebody and say, oh, you remember that column you did in, and as they're talking about it, I start to remember it, and I realize they remember it. It made an impact on somebody to the point where they still remember it all these years later. It's an incredible compliment.
0: Well, I was with some friends talking with Neil Rubin, who's a columnist, on the page, two of the Detroit News. And, of course, on social media, you can find him on Neil Rubin's Facebook page. And I was with someone recently, and they were talking about a column you did about uh, a cancer. A couple that she has cancer, and they're traveling, and the way that they're approaching cancer, and the fundraiser, and the, the couple million dollars, I guess, have been raised. And I said, oh, I'll go back and look at it. And I, I went back and looked at it, and I realized I had sent a, made a comment. On that column, and my comment had been, you know, great column, a lot of lessons to be learned here or something like that. So, you know, even those of us that read it, you know, we may not remember we read a column of yours, but there's something about it that made a difference in how we're thinking or a little message within that column. And that's what I love, and it's so eclectic, the the range of things that you write about, upbeat, serious, I mean, I, you even just told, told one recently about uh, being with your friend, uh, Judge Damon Keith, the esteemed Judge oh, yes. Damon Keith, is who is, you know, throughout the country, has really made a difference. Maybe tell our listeners a little background of Damon. He was always a regular. That one's across the street. And he's something that I someday have to say thank you and I'm sorry at the same time because he, he helped me on some things. And so a little bit about, about that and how you weave humor into, into also saying such uh, nice things about Damon and reminding people what an impact he's made. In the, in
1: the world. Well, he's amazing. He's, I think he's 90 or so. He's still a sitting federal judge, although theoretically he only works part-time now. Uh, this is somebody who's been at this so long. He went to law school, came home, and was mopping floors at the Detroit Free Press. It was the only job he could get. No, in fact, he was in law school. He was a college graduate, uh, had served in World War II was mopping floors. It was, like I said, the only job anybody would give him. And somebody came by, well, he was on break reading a law book. And a reporter, whoever it was from the free press 60, 70 years ago, said, you know, what are you doing? And uh, he said, well, I'm studying for law exams. Said, Lawyers, get back to mopping floors. Because it was so inconceivable that this black man, could become a lawyer, and what he has become is one of the most influential jurists of our lifetimes. You know, he has, you know, the cases he's tried, the decisions he made have become part of American law and American history. And here's this guy, and like you said, you just still run into him on the streets of downtown mm-hmm. Detroit. He's just Damon Keith going about his he business. He used to come in
0: Emily's across the street, eat ice cream every day. He and Herb just loved talking to each other. They were both very bright. and. Her, my partner at the time, and he's just a, a just a real guy, but that, that, the influence one. But I love the story you wrote about you were interviewing him, and and we you yeah. were eating something. And
1: oh, <laughs> he has this big soul food uh, lunch luncheon every year with a special guest who makes a little speech, and they do some presentations, and you start with, um, you know, it's, it starts with this buffet lunch, and it was the strangest thing. I got. I was eating lunch, and I don't know what I did, but the easiest way to describe it is I came down with these racking mega hiccups. I couldn't breathe, couldn't swallow, and I'm thinking if I wait long enough, it'll go away. Well, ultimately, I get hauled out of there in an ambulance, which was just embarrassing. I mean, it was not life-threatening. I was fine, but I just sort of couldn't function. Well if I'm going to write about myself in the paper I'm going to make fun of myself I figure every now and again I make fun of other people the least I can do is seize the opportunity to ridicule myself so I wrote a column about that and got and it was the first judge Keith that heard about it um, and so you know, I think you know I got a gracious phone call from him and it, but it, it but
0: was, there you were using something that kind of made fun of you but it really it really made the, the column itself poignant because you had talked about Damon and his history. And weaving the two together just was just a perfect blend, and that's what's so great about the way you do the column. I love it. And the other thing is, you know, sports town. You came to Detroit. You knew it was a great sports town. I do remember you once telling me you were excited about that because you knew what a great sports town Detroit was.
1: Yes, my talk about that when you know I was working in Las Vegas, which was a wonderful place to live. I don't visit very often, but it was this incredibly convenient place to live, and just a ton of fun to be, you know a young journalist trying to climb the ladder. But as I started looking around saying, okay, it's time to go, time to get to the next step up. It's like minor league baseball in newspapers. You keep climbing the ladder until you, you know, for me at least, until you get to the big leagues. I was looking for a city with Major League Baseball and at least one museum I couldn't get through in two hours. And so I was thrilled to come to Detroit. They were still playing in Tiger Stadium, which is just a museum of baseball. It was just wonderful. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's just everything about the city. It takes work. Some cities it's easy to love. You know, San Francisco, how can you not love everything about San Francisco? Detroit, you got to work a little harder at it, but that's part of the fun.
0: And it also works into your heart, because you really have worked at learning to love it. And, and what a great time we're going through, not just with the sports teams. I've always said the sports teams really help the morale of the people in the city of Detroit. But today, there's so many good things going on, and it's not just the sports teams.
1: It's it's absolutely true. I mean, when you, for people who don't know this, Emily had a pioneering business in downtown Detroit back when you could shoot a cannonball down the street in down in Detroit after 5 o'clock at night and hit nothing. I mean, it was it was desolate. It was just about as dark as it gets.
0: Except and on Congress and Shelby, we eventually had that place packed, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah those it, it was you know, amazing. Those,
1: those, were, those were dismal times, and we've seen it come back now to where, uh, fueled largely, we're on a, a sports station here, by Dan Gilbert, the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, he has not only bought up a ton of downtown office space, but... Uh, He's populated it with young people, people are living there, people are doing exciting things, there's, you know, there's bustle. And that's what you were trying to create. You had Mm -hmm. fun runs, you had all sorts of activities. And we're just looking for big city bustle, and for the first time in my thirty years, we have that now, and it's just huge fun yeah. to see.
0: I'm sorry that you got here just at the tail end of when we left, and of course we left because somebody, everybody wanted our corner after we made it such a busy, busy corner, and uh, you know we have, we have, talked about this a lot. We ended up getting losing our lease, but um, because that was a, a very active time, but that was an isolated area that we created so much hustle and bustle and thousands of people every day coming by the corner now it's it's in so many different areas of the city it's not just an isolated pocket i mean now there's many isolated pockets the whole whole challenge in detroit is like in every every city is to connect the communities but have separate communities at the same time
1: that is so well put And that, say, a city like Chicago, that's exactly what they have. They still sort of have the Hungarian neighborhood and the Irish neighborhood, but they're all Chicago. They're all part of it. They all feel it and they all connect. Partly, of course, because they have wonderful mass transit, which we still need here. But, um, you know, there's Midtown here is thriving, downtown is thriving, southwest Detroit, which is heavily Hispanic, is thriving, it's heavily immigrant, and it's people doing what our grandparents and their parents did. They're showing up, starting little businesses, working out of the tills, you know, they don't get loans from the bank, they wait till they've got enough money to expand, and then they expand. It's just terrific to see. At the same time, we're not describing Disneyland here, there are still a lot of places in Detroit that are tough to live. You hope that the good things going on, the influx of money and people and tax base, you hope eventually that will get out to the neighborhoods and Detroit will continue to come back the way it's coming back now in a few fortunate seconds. Well, I'm
0: calling it just like I talk about Hawaii as recreation destination. I love the other day you had your Aloha shirt on when we hooked up for lunch because <laughs> you love it and you love playing golf. And how was your MC the other day? You emceed a, a golf tournament?
1: I did. I was the MC for the golf outing for the uh, FBI Violent Crimes Task Force which was interesting. A TV camera showed up briefly, but the only person they could take pictures of, the only person they could put on camera was me because so many other people were working undercover and they can't have (laughs) their faces shown. Um, But, you know, my wife uh, used to live in and around Honolulu. And so, you know, she likes, she, she loves all things Hawaii. Um, Because of her, I started wearing Hawaiian shirts. And I'm the kind of guy who wears jeans to work most of the time anyway. Um, But more and more now, you know, I just, I wear a lot of Hawaiian shirts. Some of them we've got there. Some of them we've picked up other places. And it's funny because it's sort of become an image. And I didn't intend it to. It's just who I am. But now... I'm the Hawaiian shirt guy, and if somebody sees me and I'm not wearing a Hawaiian shirt, they'll say, hey, you're out of uniform.
0: <laughs> so it's just like when I'm in Hawaii, I'm saying nice things about Detroit, and when you're in Detroit, you're sharing nice things about Hawaii. <laughs> and I always say that wherever we go, we can enjoy our life. But say nice things about something, you know, but hopefully it's Detroit. So, Neil Rubin, I know you've got to run home and plant flowers, and I've got in my last day here in Detroit off to see my brother Max. In in Los Angeles, so um, we'll we'll catch up in a couple of weeks and do a little more. But uh, just a couple of things: the Gold Cup races or the hydroplane races are coming up in Detroit, July 11th, I believe. Uh, one of the largest Gold cu- or the hydroplane races in the country, the Grand Prix was just held, IndyCar race on in Belle Isle. Just a couple of comments on all the great things that are going on in here.
1: Well, it's vibrant. You know, it's so exciting, and it attracts people from everywhere. Like you said, the, you know, the the uh, Detroit Belle Isle Grand Peak, Grand Prix, or the hydroplane races. I don't know anything about hydroplanes. You know, I don't know anything about these boats. But they're loud, and they're exciting, and people get fired up. It's one of those things that's great to watch, even if you don't know what. You know, you get that that flat part's supposed to stay down on the water. You don't need to know anything else with that. It's just to be and partners. the
0: numbers that go attend uh, to that. For some reason, the the, the number like three hundred thousand people or something comes to, to mind. But uh, they had a hundred thousand at the Detroit Grand Prix. I mean, you know, this isn't. These aren't small events. These are really bringing people into the city, people that live in the suburbs. I've always said Detroit is is everybody. Uh, somebody sent me a note and said, "Well, I'm in Woodhaven, not Detroit." I said, "It's all the same. We're all part of the Ohana, the Detroit Ohana."
1: I love first, time, that.
0: first time I used that expression, I, and I, they, I, oh, they had. I know who it was. It was Peter Shin. His wife I met the other night. She's from Spain, and she told mm. me about a piece that she did for uh, Spanish TV. Oh. And she's heading there. I said, would you send me the link? And she said, it's all in Spanish. I said, well, I can get it from the visuals, and I'll have somebody uh, uh, translate it for me. So I opened it. It's an hour-long show, and I sent her an email. And she, I said, I'm going to have someone translate it. She said, well, it's not all Detroit. It's about Ann Arbor and Farmington, and because I know they're from Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Peter Shin is working with Shinola, but he's from Hawaii. And uh, I, I can't... I can, wrote that back to her. I said, Farmington, Ann Arbor, Detroit, because she's new to Detroit. I said to me, they're all part of the Detroit Ohana. Makes sense? And I knew she'd understand what I meant by being from Hawaii. But it, it's true. It, it, every part of, of Detroit is part of Detroit. And when all those people come down to the Grand Prix, to a Tiger game, to a Lion game, to the Red Wing game, those stands wouldn't be filled without metropolitan Detroiters.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I think you're onto something here. Emily is revered here, for those who aren't aware of this, still remembered and revered here uh, for her campaign to to just say nice things about Detroit. It was that simple. It's still on T-shirts. It's still on bumper stickers. But I think you found something else here. Detroit Ohana. I love that. And I knew I that you that understand on that. I
0: think you understand that, knowing how much you love Hawaii. And, uh, gosh, we'll, we'll catch up in a couple of weeks, have fun planting, planting your flowers today. It's an absolutely gorgeous day in Detroit. It's always, as to me, it's as beautiful here on a summer day in Detroit as it is in Hawaii. And uh, I feel very grateful to be able to have my foot in both places and be able to, like, like we can all do, make a little difference wherever we are. So thanks, Neil.
1: You're very Last welcome. Last thoughts
0: to our listeners about uh, coming to Detroit, coming to well, visit?
1: Yes, come visit. We'll take good care of you. And, Emily, we love it when you're here, and we love you. Thank you.
0: Well, Neil and I will give you a warm welcome. when you, you, anywhere, you are when you come to Detroit, you, you get a hold of Neil or find me, and we'll give you a warm welcome. It's the Emily T. Gale Show, ESPN, Hawaii.com. A lot of fun talking with Neil Rubin. Page two, inside page of Detroit News. You can find him on Facebook at Neil Rubin. Thanks, Neil. And the Gilthorpe column. Read that. Comics.com? Comics.com or DetroitNews.com. Great. Thanks, Neil. Aloha.
1: That was fun. You're so good at that. Thank you.